Good morning, Anthem Church. Good morning. Hey, all right, I can actually hear voices. All right, hey, my name is Todd. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, chapter 12. We've been making our way through the book of Acts, if you've been with us. It's what we do here at Anthem. We walk through the book of the Bible. We're actually going to finish uh, Acts 12 today, and then we'll take a break from Acts for the summer, going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount this summer. And then we will return uh, to the book of Acts this fall with chapter 13 and finish it out uh, by Christmas. So we are in Acts 12 today, and I want to actually give you the big idea right out of the gate. Uh, the big idea this morning is actually the, not just the big idea of this chapter. You could say that this is the big idea of the entire Bible. It might be the big idea of all big ideas. It's the biggest idea. It's there everywhere you look, every story. It's there in seed form. It's repeated many times throughout Scripture, literally verbatim. It's there in every anecdote, every story. We see it played out in principle and in theory and in practice over and over and over. The big idea today is the big idea of perhaps the entire Bible. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You'll see it there all throughout Scripture Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 3, 34, Proverbs 29, 23, Matthew 23, 12, Luke 1, 52, 14, 11, 18, 14, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 6. If that was too fast, watch the live cast over again later. <laughs> but it's everywhere. Just open your eyes. It's in every story. You see it over and over. God reinforces this principle. This is the undergirding truth of the Bible, is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to make sure we understand that because we see it a lot and it's a phrase we've heard enough. But understand, God opposes the proud. He's not just indifferent to proud people. He's not just like, well, let them do their own thing or I don't really like proud people the way I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I'm just going to stay away from them. He actively opposes the proud. Like he's trying to cast out Brussels sprouts. He's against them. <laughs> and he's against the proud. He actually opposes them. So there's this idea that some people are running towards God and some people are running away from him. What scripture says is everybody's heading towards God. Everybody's going towards him in one way. It's just, are you coming to him as a friend or as an enemy? Everybody's going towards him and in turn, he's coming at everyone. He's not, he doesn't have his back turned on any of you, on anyone. He is face to face with everybody and he's either running towards you like the father and the prodigal son with open arms, like that scene across an open field. I haven't seen you forever and they run and run and they meet in like a spiral of hugs. Or they meet as in a battle scene, like in Braveheart, where there's the heartbeat, the dum dum, dum dum, dum dum. Chronicles of Narnia. It's a line the witch in the wardrobe. It's that thing. It's opposition. That God is opposed to the proud. He is actively against them. Everyone, he is facing everyone. He's either facing them in response to them being an enemy or he is facing them and coming towards them in grace the way the father is to the prodigal son who's returning. And how is he returning? Humble. I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? What was I doing? If I could just be a servant in your house, I'd be happy. I don't even expect to be a son anymore. Just let me in. How's that grace received? Open arms, hugs in the middle of a field. But God gives, so God gives grace. Just as he's actively opposed to the proud, he is actively giving grace to the humble. He's not just indifferent to the humble either. Like, I like them more or less. They're, 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 I'm happy with them. He's actively giving good things and facing them and chasing them down with good things because he loves the humble and he wants to give grace to them. We will see this principle on clear display uh, here in Acts 12 this morning. So if you have it, 
open or you're there, let's start with the first four verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. This Herod here that's mentioned is Herod Agrippa I. He is the great, or he's not the great, he's the grandson of the, uh, the Christmas Herod. <laughs> you know, the Herod from the Christmas story, the one who killed all the infants because he was scared of a baby that might become king and usurp his throne. It looks like his grandson has inherited a bit of his moxie. He doesn't like being told that he might not be able to be in control anymore. And so this Herod is the grandson of that one, the Christmas Herod, and he's apparently much like his grandfather, and he wants to kill anything that threatens his exaltation. Anything that takes away from his attempts to make much of himself, he wants it put away or he wants to get rid of it. And so he kills James. And it just, it's just a verse, and it's stating what happened. And just in passing, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, is dead, murdered with a sword. <laughs> this, this prevalent apostle who you'll read about in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just dead because Herod couldn't stand the idea of somebody threatening his position of authority. So he takes a sword and has him murdered because of the threat that he poses. And now... He puts Peter in jail because he wants to see that he saw please the Jews. Not only did it meet his own selfish needs, but he saw other people kind of liked it. So he has other incentives now too. Not just it's making much of me, but I'm getting even more applause now from people, which is the whole thing he's after anyways. So he puts Peter in jail, but he doesn't want to kill him now because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that would be inappropriate. I mean, that would be wrong to kill him during the feast. So he has this weird sense of morality. Well, he still follows some weird rules. Like, I don't want to look like a bad dude. I mean, I'll wait till after the... That's his logic. It's, he's thinking that he's being a good guy by postponing this guy's death. So that is Herod, and that's what's going on. So pride is looking only to self-interest. Herod's concerned about what Herod is interested in, what's going to keep my, myself looking great. So pride looks inward to self-interest. Humility, though, looks up. To God. Humility looks out. It looks out to God above and to the neighbor sitting around. What humility thinks of other people puts others' interests into the accounting of what I do today. It's a variable. It has weight. And it's not just something I'm aware of. It's something that actually has weight. It has currency. It affects my budget of time and energy and emotional thought and what I post and what I don't. Humility actually takes into account other people's interests. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We're going to see here, there is a strong correlation between pride and prayer. If you're taking notes or kids, if you're at home drawing something, imagine on your paper, you have a, a, a horizontal line going this way with an arrow this way. This is going to be, this is going to be your, your prayer life, starting at not very much, sometimes, more often than not, or always. You have this scale going. You, can you see it in your mind? You have this horizontal thing of prayer. And then you have a, a vertical line starting here with an arrow up. And this is pride. So you have, I'm not proud at all. I'm the least proud person I know. I'll prove it to you. I'll post about how unproud I am. Or I'm as proud as all can be. I'm only interested in number one. You see these two things in your mind. They have an inverse relationship. 
this way. So if you are very proud, you don't pray. You, you are self-interested. You don't worry about, you don't ask for God's help. You have everything under control. Conversely, if you pray a lot, you're not very proud because you're putting everything in front of God. You're putting everything. You're saying, I can't even wake myself in the morning. When I lay down to bed at night, it's like, it's like I get to experience the resurrection every day. I lay myself down and pray that I will be raised up again every morning. And I wake up and every morning you should say, thank God the gospel is real. Resurrection. I was dead and now I'm alive. Like every morning you get to experience the reality of resurrection. God has so weaved it into the themes and rhythms of our life. Every night you lay yourself down at the mercy of sleep. You have no control to wake yourself up. You set an alarm. You have no ability to, to conjure, to wake yourself in the morning, but God does it in his grace day after day. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning that you wake up is a mercy from God that he woke you. And so we see that the more proud you are, the, the less you pray. And the more you pray, the more it reduces your pride. So if you feel like you're a proud person, start praying more. Start depending on, start acting like you can't do it all. Start pretending, even just if it starts as, a, as you going through the rhythm and it's not sincere. Like at first, just start with the routine of asking for help and act like you don't have it under control. And teach yourself, teach yourself humility that you can't do it and that you need help. Because where you look reveals where you believe the power is. If you look, if you, do you pray because you think it does anything? Or have you stopped praying because you don't think it does anything? If you're not praying, what are you looking to? Where do you look when you can't kick the habit? When you've did it again? If it's not prayer, where are you looking? Where you look reveals where you think the power is. Do you think there's actual power in God that he can actually do something about your life? Is he able? Does he care? That comes out in prayer. Do you, do you pray to him acting like he actually can do anything about it? Do you pray to him like he cares enough to actually act on that power? Pray to him, because where you look shows where the power is. John Stott, in his commentary on this chapter of Acts 12, I have it up on a slide for you, is tapping into what these two communities are doing. You have Herod pitted against the church in a very clear kind of oppositional sense. Look what he says here. Here, then, we have two communities, the world and the church, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of prison. On the other side, the church turns to prayer. Now you might say that sounds lopsided. It sounds like Herod has all the keys. How much do you believe in the power of prayer? How much do you believe in the power of God? Because it sounds lopsided to me in the other direction. Herod has a sword and some guys that are paid to watch people for a living and a crown that can be taken from him at any moment and will rust someday anyways. That's all he has? And the church has God who made the world? It sounds like they have the advantage in this fight. It all depends on what you think of prayer. So which power will prevail here? Herod's pride or the church's humility? Look at verses 6 through 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, because it's finally okay to kill him now, it won't look bad, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So he has people on each side, he's chained to them, and there's people watching the door. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Hey, get up! Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done 
being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. <laughs> when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. The gate just opens before. He's like, obviously, this is a dream. That's not real life. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, uh, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He wakes up in the middle of this. He's like, I'm not dreaming. I'm really outside. That, that just happened. I am outside. I am free. That really just happened. Now notice in the narrative, I love how Luke sprinkles some of these details in here. Look, humility can rest in a hard place. Where's Peter? In jail for his faith, handcuffed to people on either side, people on, at the doors, a promise of his execution in the morning. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. Why? Because he's humble. God's in control, and if, God, if this is my time, it's my time. I can't, I can't make a, a cubit of my life. I can't extend my life by one second longer than God wants it to be, and I won't be cut short any shorter than he wants me to live. I'm going to sleep. I got nothing. I got, my conscience is clear before God and man. I'm going to sleep tonight. And it's uncomfortable, but humility can rest even in a hard place. But look at pride. Pride can't even sleep with the upper hand. Herod has this guy chained in jail, and he's saying, now you stay there and handcuff him. You stay there, and you guys stay at the door and stay awake and watch this guy. Like, they are not even allowed to sleep because he might get away because pride can't sleep because it's all resting on you. You can't go to sleep because when you go to sleep, your world pauses for eight hours. When you rule your life, there's nobody governing the world for those eight hours. And the world needs you. You're important. You've got to stay late at work. You've got to get up early. You've got to go to bed late because everything's depending on you. Don't you know that? That's pride speaking to you. you. It doesn't. You can sleep. The world still spins. And it spins around the sun. It's doing all that without you. It doesn't need your help at all. It has been from the beginning of time, and it will continue until the end of time without you. Pride can't sleep, though. Even with the upper hand, Peter is bound. He's bound, but sleeping. <laughs> the guards are free, but they're bound to stay awake <laughs> because their heads depend on it. <laughs> they can't sleep because Herod will kill them if they fall asleep. Peter's in chains when he's resting like a, like a Calvinist. He's asleep. God's in control. Psalm 127, verse 1 through 2 says it well. Unless the Lord builds the house, I have it up on a slide for you. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain, in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of your anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. <laughs> One of the gifts of humility and following God is that you can rest. You can sleep at the end of the day. You can put in a hard day's work. You can go hard in faith for God. Lay your head on the pillow and be like, it has to have been enough because it's all I had. I did my best with what you gave me and now I will rest because I serve my God with all my heart. And it's not enough to keep the world going, but then he's not asking me to do that. He's just asking me to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to worry about tomorrow's trouble. I'm just worried about today's. Just do today's stuff. God won't give you more than a day's work. You don't need to pay it forward and start doing tomorrow's work and stressing yourself out. Just sleep. Tomorrow will be there when you wake up. God's good. He's faithful. He makes the sun rise. The humble have rest. But they don't just rest. Look, like they actually, they respond to stuff too. Like, so Peter's sleeping, but when the angel whacks him, he wakes up. <laughs> He's not just like, it's good. 
we got this. God's in control. Angel's like, no, get up, Peter. And like Peter's apparently like some of you who like need a good whack to wake up. You're like, you need the alarm set to like blazing just to even like stir from the dead. It's like literally raising a dead person for you to get up in the morning. Somebody has to like, so the angel has to, this is so funny that an angel has to like whack Peter. <laughs> like I love how like real some, like on some hand you're like, this is crazy town. This is like mythology level. Like what's happening? Like he's walking through doors and things are opening. It's like, oh. But then on, then, but then like at the same time, it's so earthy that he has to get struck upside the head just to wake up. <laughs> like how real life is that in some ways? I love the Bible. It's so awesome. So, so he wants, and God wants to wake us up. And so sometimes he needs to whack us. So like, maybe you're one of those people like me. Sometimes I need a little whack because <laughs> I don't quite hear him at first. Maybe you're like Peter. That's good news. It's grace. God's willing to whack you. If it, <laughs> he wants you to wake up, he will smack you upside the head and say, get up. So once he realizes it's not a dream, he heads right to his friend's house. But check this out. They're busy. <laughs> Verses 12 through 19. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Girl, you're crazy. He's in jail. What do you think we're doing? We're praying for him right now. He's not at the door. Silly Billy. But she kept insisting that it was so. She's like, no, he's, I heard him. I heard his voice. He's there. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Because that makes more sense. <laughs> it's not him, it's his angel. That's, oh, yeah, that's, that's far more logical. But Peter continued knocking. He's like, hello, guys. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him with his hand to be silent, you know, this, the universal shut up, <laughs> finger in front of your lips, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Not James that was murdered, James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and Herod searched for him and did not find him. He's frantically looking. Where's Peter? I set him right there. (laughs) Like, you ever put your phone somewhere, and then you're like, I know it was there, and now you can't find it? He's like, I set Peter right there. (laughs) Now, if you kids would stop touching my stuff, (laughs) I can't find Peter. Where did I leave him? I could have sworn I left him right there. He can't find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The centuries, like I said, their job, their life, not just their job, their livelihood depended on staying awake. And an angel slips Peter right by them. And now they're dead. Herod has them killed because they didn't do the one thing. He's like, you had one job. Keep Peter right there. Where's Peter? Not there. Pride has no category for failure. If you are proud, you cannot deal with the failures or shortcomings of other people. If you are around proud people, they do not tolerate your shortcomings at all. There's no room for error. Because they were depending on you to do something and you didn't do it and now their world falls apart. Now they have extra work to do. You let them down. Don't you know that your world should revolve around doing what they want, seeing to their every need, making sure that they never have to experience discomfort, or maybe that's how you treat other people. Don't, didn't you know that this inconveniences me? And am I not the main character also in your story? I know I am in mine. How are you guys not in, absorbed into my story where you figure out your role is to do what makes me happy? How dare you let me down? Why are you even in this story? I'll kick you out of my story if you don't start shaping up and making it easier for me. I don't need you. I have other people I could write into this script. 
Pride has no category for failure, for falling short, so these men are put to death because Herod doesn't know what to do with people who let him down. There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. There's just death. You let me down, dead. No category for failure whatsoever. But God gives grace to the humble, which explains Peter's patience at the door. (laughs) Peter's at the door. He's like, I have new friends. You guys suck. Let me in. Like, I've, I've had a weird night. I'm just looking for some comfort. But he says, he just keeps knocking. <laughs> He's like, hello, Rhoda, it's me. It's not my angel. I don't even know what that means, Rhoda. Let me in. He's patient with these people who are letting him down. Like, as far as he knows, they're on his heels. He's being tracked down as a wanted man. He's, he's skipped bail. He's wanted. And he's like, let me in. I don't have time for these shenanigans. I'm going to get new friends when this is all said and done with. No, he's patient with them. (laughs) He keeps banging at the door, being like, no, guys, come on. It's me. It's really me. Ephesians 4, 32 says it well. Be kind to one another. I have it up on a screen for you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The heart of humility is the Christian heart of forgiveness, knowing how much we have ourselves been forgiven. We extend that grace to others, saying, like, I know what it's like to fall short. I know what it feels like to be let down. So I can imagine what it's like to be on the other side of the table. I know what it's like to look to interests that are somebody else's other than my own. Because I know what it's like to be self-interested. And I know how hard that is. So I can imagine what that's like for you. And so you extend grace. You're tender-hearted, you're, which means, like, you want to. You're leaning in. You're trying. You're like 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it, you're giving the benefit of the doubt. You're, you're, you're believing all things. You're hoping all things on the front end. Now, you're not a naive pushover. You are willing to face facts when you have to, but you're willing to extend the benefit of the doubt on the front end. You are hoping. You're hoping that it's not as bad as it seems. You're hoping that. You don't want it to be worse than you thought. You don't want it to turn out to be just as bad as you thought so that you can say you were right and say, I posted this two weeks ago. I told you. You don't want it to be that bad. You want it to be better. You're tenderhearted. You're hoping the best for those because God has forgiven you in Christ, and so you want to be like him and extend that grace to others. But God does oppose the proud, and anything that can't go on, for, that can't go on forever won't. That's good news for you. If you're ever worried about things, you're like, this can't go on. This is madness. This is insanity. Anything that can't go on forever won't. It can't. You just said so. <laughs> this can't go on forever. Praise God, it won't. It won't. Look at verses 20 through 23. Now Herod was very angry, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. <laughs> so we see that Herod was struck, just like Peter was. <laughs> Peter was struck and rose up to life because he was humble, resting in God. Herod is proud, and God strikes him. But the result is a different kind of striking. He strikes him down because pride people stand tall, and they won't be talked down to. And so God puts him down. But the humble are raised up. <laughs> they are struck, and the result is they are on their feet and free. Herod is proud, and so he is struck down. Look at Josephus. I don't have this up on a screen uh, screen for you. I'll just read it. Josephus, uh, a historian, wrote about a lot of the early uh, 
time period that happens interlaps with church history. Look at what he wrote here about this same event in Antiquities of the Jews, book 19, chapter 8. He says, now when Agrippa, so this is him just as a historian telling the story from just an observer's point of view. Now when Agrippa, Herod, had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea. He put on a garment made of holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. So it's sparkling and glazing. And when he came into the theater early in the morning with the sunrise, the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun rays shone out after a surprising manner and so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently on him. It was just glaringly bright because he's wearing all this silver and the sun's rising. And his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another. He's a god. He's a god. Look at him. He's shining. He's like, he's like transfigured before our very eyes. He's like a god among men. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, Herod, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as a superior to mortal nature. Before we just thought you were a dude. Now we know you're God. Upon this, the king neither, neither did rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. He didn't say, no, guys, hold on. I, I had Wheaties for breakfast, okay? Like, I'm just a guy. He didn't do that. He didn't correct him. I put on my pants one leg at a time just like you. Then a severe pain arose in his belly, and he began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by his pain, he departed this life. So even, even the, this, the general history of the world has this story of this proud man standing in front of people who then flatter him by saying, he's a god, and he doesn't rebuke them or correct them. And he was struck dead. He had a violent pain in his belly and he burst out. God struck him down. How do you respond when people praise you? Are you flatter proof? Do you know yourself well enough to be like, that's not true. Like, that's very kind of you, but that's too much. Are you, do you have the ability to do that? Are you, do you know how to be praised in proportion to what, do you, are, to what you actually are talented at? Do you have the ability to know your strengths and weaknesses? To receive healthy criticism? To be able to to hear a kind word, but also not to be flattered. Because if, you're, if you think much of yourself, if you're proud, you can be flattered into doing crazy stuff, like believing you're God or believing that you're all that because so-and-so said so. And I kind of agreed with him anyways, but it was nice to hear it from somebody else. <laughs> Look at Proverbs 27, 21. How do you respond when people say nice things about you? Proverbs says it this way. The crucible is for silver. That's what purifies silver. The furnace is for gold. That's where you put gold if you want it to be better. And a man is tested by his praise. You want to find out the quality of a man or a woman? Tell them that you think they're great. What do they do with it? Do they, th- do they be like, I am pretty good. I, you know, I was kind of down today. You're right. I am all that. Or do they know how a sense of proportion to be like, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I know someone who's greater. And, not that you, and I'm not saying that all Christians have to turn every compliment into some, like, Jesus juke. We're like, that's very nice of you, but you know who's really awesome? Jesus. Like, you don't have to do that every, you don't have to, like, verbatim do that. But is that your heart, though? It's not a matter of, like, saying the words, because that could just be another, like, lawful thing that you adopt. Like, I'm just going to do that. Every time somebody says, Todd, I think your teaching was great. It's like, you know who's a good teacher? Jesus. <laughs> church was great today. You know who has a better church? Jesus does. It's like, yeah, okay, we got it. <laughs> Like, and I agree. <laughs> like, I don't disagree with you. That's not the problem here. The problem is, like, that I want you, in essence, to embrace this idea of, like, I really actually think God is greater. Not just something I say in order to deflect and actually get you to say more stuff. It's like, no, no. I mean, this sermon wasn't that good, was it? I mean, it, I mean, it was only okay, right? I mean, like, come on. You know. Like, there's a way of doing that that's actually inviting people to, like, flatter you more. And the last thing you want to do is for people to lie to you. Why do you like being lied to? Even if it makes you feel better. 
Like, why would you prefer that? Why would you prefer to make your friends lie to you in order for you to feel good about yourself? God made you. He knows you in and out. He has forgiven you through and through. Why isn't that enough for you to take solace in that and let people think what they want, receive compliments, be like, that's very kind of you, and receive it as the nice gesture it is, is, or be resistant to it when it's not so nice at all. Like Proverbs says, the wounds of a friend are faithful, but many are the kisses of an enemy. There's, not everybody saying nice things to you is your friend. Enemies say nice things to you, and they, they're doing it to try and get you to do something for them or to feel a certain way about them because later they might need you to do something for them. Are you flatter-proof? You are if you're humble because you know your limitations. You know you're not all that. You know your strengths, and you're okay with them. You thank God for them, and you put them to use for his glory. Humility is not merely resisting praise. Humility is actually increasing praise for someone else. The test of humility is not just being like, oh, no, I'm, I'm nothing. My sermons are nothing. My pants aren't that tight. Oh, my hair isn't that nice. Like that's, true humility is not just def- deflecting every compliment that comes at you. Humility is increasing praise for something else other than yourself. That is the essence of humility. Look at verses 24 through 25. We'll finish out Acts 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Why? Because the humble were pointing to something else. The humble were pointing to God not themselves, and they didn't make this into this big circus where they, every, every time somebody said something nice about them that they felt this pressure to be like, oh, no, I'm actually not great because I don't want to be burst open like Herod. Like, that's not the thing. Like, the thing is to point things towards God and not just to do it out of, like, rote memory, but because you actually think he's awesome and you want people to think that too because you're wanting them to agree with you that God is great. And so the word of God increased and multiplied. It grew because their humility pointed people to it. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Humility does not end in less praise, but more. If you ask yourself, am I humble? It's like, well, is God getting more praise or less because of the way you handle yourself? If you are humble, he's getting more praise as a net result of your activities, of your words, of your actions. He's getting more. Humility doesn't seek to decrease personal glory. It's not, I'm not, because that still makes you the main character of the story. Don't just worry about decreasing your own glory and reputation. Worry about increasing his. Elevate his glory. Lift him up and everybody will be drawn to him. Lift him so high that nobody, nobody can ignore him. He's so high that the whole world turns and looks to him. Turn to me and be saved, all of you. Look to me. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, all people will come to you. When we lift him up, people are drawn to him. Not when we push ourselves down. The natural result will be that you will be less high. Because when you lift him up so high, there's only so much room that can go. But you don't need to reinforce it by pushing yourself down. This isn't some lesson in self-deprecation. Humility is not just being mean to yourself. Humility is loving and lifting up God. John Stott, one last time, says it well. Have it on a slide for you. It is in striking contrast to the death of the tyrant that Luke adds this summary verse. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's Luke's summary statement on everything that happened here. Indeed, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. When the chapter opens, James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is triumphing. At the end of the chapter, when it closes, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing. You see, God turned the world on its head. All the things that they thought were advantages turned out to be actually weaknesses. All the things that people thought were weaknesses turned out to be their strengths. The the church depended on God and his power, and in the end, they are the ones standing, and the word of God increased and multiplied. Peter's free. Herod's dead. God wins. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That is our big idea this morning. That is the big idea of everything 
God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let me close on one practical note. So if you're in here and you're like, I'm worried that I might be proud, what do I do? What do I do? If I am proud and I want to fix that problem, I'm worried. I don't pray very often, so my conclusion based on your chart was that I'm proud. That's what's keeping me from praying is because I'm proud. You might think that the solution is brag less, right? Stop boasting so much. But the scriptural solution is actually boast more. Boast more about God. Boast more about the right thing. You already know how to do it. Think about how awesome you think you are. Now, take all that and apply it to God because he actually is awesome. (laughs) And you're not what you think you are. Like, you already know how to do this. You've trained yourself very well in how to boast. You already know how to do it. Just do it at at the right area. There will be boasting. God's oriented the world in such a way. You will boast. It's inescapable. You are boasting about something this morning with what you wear, what you talk about, what you don't talk about. You're boasting. What is it? That's the question. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, we'll close this thing out. Look at the way the prophet says it. Have it on a screen for you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why? Because boasting is bad? No, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. He doesn't say, stop boasting, it's too much. He's like, no, you're doing it wrong. You're aiming it at the wrong thing. You think you're wise, so you boast about that? Where did you get your wisdom from? Where did you inherit it from? Did you invent it? You didn't. You think you're strong? Where do you think you get life, breath, and everything else from? Who gave you the food that gives you the energy? Where does it come from? Not you. If you're rich, if you're wealthy, if you're privileged, thank God for it. Why are you boasting in yourself? You think you were... You think you hit a triple and you're born on third. Like, look up and say, it should produce the opposite of boasting. It should produce humility, which is boasting about the one who gave it to you. You already know how to do what God's required. If you want to be humble, if you want to combat pride, don't boast less. Don't leave here with your application being, I need to talk less about Todd. I need to talk less about myself. That's not the application. That will be a natural result of you talking more about God. That will happen. You will talk less about yourself. You will think less of yourself, but not because you need to run yourself down, but because you'll be thinking so much about God. And you'll be doing so much and orienting your time around trying to make much of him. The natural result will be humility. You'll think much of your creator. And you'll think less and less of yourself. And you'll think more and more of other people's interests because that's who he's interested in, not just you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us something to boast about. We like boasting. I like boasting. I like being excited about a team or a thing or an idea, and I like that feeling, that rush of energy of feeling unified when, with like a thought and, like, and feeling excited about it. I want to tell everybody this thing. I want to wear this shirt with this band on it. I want everybody to know I like their music. I like, I, I like the feeling of being excited about something, of seeing a movie of seeing, and wanting to share it. I, I like the feeling. Forgive me and forgive us for spending so much energy and being so excited about things that do not matter. Or if they do matter, they are only down the list. God, you have done something worth boasting about, and I will never be ashamed. I will never oversell it. I've seen movies that I've heard that were so talked up, and I saw it, and it was like, there's no way it could live up to the expectation. It's too much. What you did on the cross cannot be over communicated. It cannot be flattered. We cannot overstate it. We cannot make too much of Jesus in a way that we would be embarrassed or ashamed or turn out to be wrong. 
We can boast about you to our heart's content and never hold back and never feel shame for doing it. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, far be it for me to boast except for in the cross where I'm crucified to the world and the world to me. What you did is worth boasting about. Please fill our heart with that excitement. May we leave here and live lives that are so full of the excitement of what you have done that the natural, normal, supernatural response would be to be what we do with every other lesser thing, would be to go and tell everybody about it, to want people to be joined in to the excitement because the solution to pride is not running ourselves down or to believing that the things we liked were actually silly. It's to elevate our thoughts of you and to elevate yourself in our own minds. So please, even this morning, elevate your reputation in our own hearts and minds right now. Increase and multiply in us in reputation, in honor, the way that we see you, the way that we respect you, love you, honor you, want you, want more of you. Do that in us right now as individuals through your spirit. And then give us grace to go out and share that good news with others. And by your grace, may it increase and multiply out there the way it has in our own hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.